Welcome to the Jacks Off podcast. I am Jack Manville, and I am joined by Scott Davidson. I'm not going to call him my co-host. I'm not going to call him the producer. Let's just be honest. Scott's funding this thing right now, so <laughs> that's that's why Scott's here. You know, he's making sure this is happening in the first place. And also, I'm joined by a very special guest today, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Clint Romishaw, is in the house. Uh, obviously, via uh, phone call, we can't be together right now because the world world is falling apart. Clint, how you doing? Doing great, even though the world's falling apart. <laughs> the world's falling apart. And, and uh, you know, obviously, uh, from uh, rural, uh, you know, Idaho to New York City level, where are y'all falling in that in the North Dakota equation? Well, uh, we're, we're probably more on the, the Idaho spectrum. You know, okay. It's, it's always great to live in that, like I said, states that are like one person per 12 square miles, so. Social so, distancing camp since, I don't know when the state was abducted into the union, but I'm pretty sure we, we're right up there. We haven't even so, been in our state yet, the population. Clint well, doesn't see anybody for like a week or so, basically what he's saying. If he doesn't need to see anybody ever, he's good. So yeah. this social distancing thing is just kind of par for the course for you right now. Well, yeah. I'm, but I mean, every time you're driving down the road, you wave. So we've got that going. <laughs> yeah, at least, at least everyone's acknowledging that... Uh, they're still friendly. There's no riots going on up there. And, uh, and, and, and you're in Minot, North Dakota, which is yeah. basically an oil slash Air Force town, from what I understand. Yeah, you know, which is, I mean, <laughs> kind of an interesting dynamic to c combine those two things, the Air Force and the oil. Yeah. What is, what is um, I got to ask this, though. What's the weather like up there? Is that keeping people in or? Oh, man. So um, we had four inches of snow like three days ago. Oh, wow. I had to get the snowblower out one more time. And after that, I finally said, you know, screw this. <laughs> uh, so if it snows again, this guy ain't doing a damn thing. Just going to let it melt. And if it melts in July, so be it. No one's walking off the driveway anyway. So. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it, it, it's, it's only for you at this point, right? If you're actually yeah. going to do anything for, the, for, for show snowballing. That's interesting. I did learn, though, if I uh, don't pay attention where the dog tennis balls are. They really sling out of that snowblower well when you run over them. Oh, shit. <laughs> as long as no one's to the right of you, you're good, right? <laughs> Take out an eye, kill a couple of people. Hey, Clint, I want to, uh, I want to do a, just a quick intro of you uh, for, for those listening who aren't uh, aware of the, the gist of things. Uh, you were a 12-year veteran of the United States Army. You uh, grew up in uh, California, rural California, kind rural. of more rural than where you're at now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you are a New York Times bestseller, um, uh, author of the book uh, Red Platoon. And uh, you, in 2013, you were awarded the Medal of Honor by President Obama. I got all those bases covered right now. Yes. I want to get I want to get in the most important part of this conversation right off the bat. Growing up, you told me this story. Uh, one time and it blew my mind i don't know why i was like starstruck hearing this because anybody i mean i'm in my 30s and i'm pretty sure anybody under the age of 50 would have a hard time acknowledging how cool this was but uh growing up in very rural california you were close to the nevada border correct yes and uh there was a terrible snowstorm what late 80s early 90s uh early early mid 90s and your dad was a true hero out of that. And they, it was such a crazy snowstorm that they made a movie about it and start, starring Neil Patrick Harris, Doogie Hauser slash Barney, right? Yes. 
And because of everything, you know, they made the movie. And then your dad was on Phil, the Phil Donahue show. And I just want to hear everything leading up to your dad going on the Phil Donahue show. Uh, hey, hey, by the way, by the way, this is not about Quint today. We're talking about Quint's dad. Yeah, which, I mean, <laughs> well, I've got two stories about dad real quick. The first one is um, <laughs> we do have to thank my dad because as uh, I got to that age of kind of coming into manhood, he sat me down to do the birds and the bees speech. And it simply went like this, you know, if, hey, Clint, you know, if that condom didn't break, you wouldn't be here today. <laughs> so that's the, you know, it, it is a really a, a good appreciation of dad day. Uh, so then we fast forward and kind of give background. Where I grew up in rural California, we were like seven miles from the, the, the Nevada border and like 12, 15 from the Oregon. So right up in that corner of Northern California. Um, and I grew up in a town called Lake City, which uh, the population was about 100 people. Um, I went to school in a town called Cedarville, where the population was about 500. So you weren't doing that whole cool LA uh, sunglasses and convertible California. You were doing like the settler California. Three cows every morning before going to school. Yeah. <laughs> the, the California people don't see in the tourist magazines. Yeah. Exactly. You know, we <laughs> living up in the high desert area where... Uh, yeah, there's not much up there. Um, <laughs> so, so that's rural, you think. Well, just across the state line in Nevada, it gets really, really rural. Um, like you can tell when you cross state line because you go from this nice paved road to gravel. And it is gravel for hundreds of miles out that way. Uh, the only things that are really out there is my granddad's ranch in Via that takes, it's 26 miles away. There's no power. There's, you know, even back then there was no power. There's still no cell reception there today. It's very, wow. No, it's very rural in the sense of third world country rural. Um, so early 90s, my dad was working for uh, the Washoe County Road Crew, uh, which was his main occupation, occupation when I was growing up. Grand heavy equipment for the roads out there. Take care of all those sweet gravel roads. And there was only three people that worked out in that station out in Long Valley with my dad, uh, another worker, Dusty, and then uh, their boss, Patterson. So it's early 90s, and it is like one of the worst winters we've had on record in, in years up in Northern California. I think you know, we were on pace before Christmas to have like eight foot of snow up in that region. Which by even by where you're at now, that's a lot of snow. Yeah, yeah, that's a ridiculous amount of snow. And... So all of a sudden, you know, one day I'm kind of chilling at the house and dad doesn't like show up at his normal time going, coming back from work and all right, go to bed, wake up the next morning. And dad tells us, kind of brings us kids around. He's like, hey, something happened last night. Kind of want you guys to know, so you're not surprised by it. All right, young kid, it's like, oh, but you hit a deer last night on your driveway. Right. Big news, rural California. And he says, no, apparently there was a family that was lost and, uh, me and Dusty and Patterson found them. Okay, don't think much of it. Well, the story comes out, this young couple called the Stolpas um, were headed home for Christmas, and they were coming from like Southern California, headed up going to like Idaho. Well, as they're looking at their maps and they're seeing all these mountain ranges and passes shut down because of the snow, they look at this tiny little road on their atlas, because before we had Google Maps and you know GPS, you had to look at an atlas. You had to, it was survival. That, that shows you, hey, there's this road that connects up into, you know, Idaho or whatever. And so they take it. Well, they come into our town 
they hit the last ga gas station for like 100 miles and uh, the owner of the gas station, uh, Gary Utter, as they were filling up that night, says, hey, where are you guys going? And they're, oh, we're headed to Idaho out through Highway 22, which meant out through Nevada. And he's like, uh, don't go out there. It's, they don't maintain those roads. And as you cross state line, there's these huge signs that say, no winter maintenance the next 100 miles. Well, of course, this guy and his wife and their little baby, you know, they're trying to get back, you know, Christmas to see the, the family. Well, they get taken off. Um, and at some point, they get stuck on the side of the road in the snow. And I think they were out there for almost like two weeks. And they had like, wow, a fruit cake in the back, uh, a little bit of water, you know, and they're and for, like, I think the first week, maybe week and a half, they're sitting in their pickup just trying to survive, running every so often for heat, thinking at any moment someone's going to come by and see them. Well, there's really only three people out there, and there's hundreds of miles of roads, and it's my dad, Dusty, and, and, and Patterson. And, of course, they're maintaining other things. And after about a week or so, I think, they decide to head off on foot. And so they start walking and they start walking and they start walking and they start walking and it comes to the point where exhaustion's setting in, uh, they're getting frostbit severely. And the husband takes his wife and the baby and he basically puts them in a little cave he finds off the, the hillside, says, you guys stay here, I'm gonna continue on for help. Um, so he leaves them there and he takes off. And I don't know how long he was walking for then, but, uh, my dad's boss Patterson was kind of making his rounds in the truck and comes across this guy out in the middle of nowhere walking around. And of course, pulls over, what are you doing out here, buddy? And he tells him, hey, I'm out here with my wife and my baby. We've been stuck, we're lost. I don't know how long we've really been here. And of course, Patterson takes him, takes him back to the, 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 the shop where they have all the heavy equipment for the, the road operation. And they, at, at the shop, they at least have power and a radio to call back to our small town and say, hey, we found this guy. At that point, the family had already put out a missing person report. But of course, between California and Idaho, they didn't uh, even- That's a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. So of course, now they found him, now they kind of got it narrowed down. So they launch, of course, the CHP, Nevada State Patrol, search and rescue, but of course, freaking blizzards are still going on. Um, but Dusty calls up and tells, or uh, Patterson calls up to Dusty and my dad and says, hey, we gotta go find, find these people. And he tries to get what information he can out of the husband. Of course, the husband is just, you know, been out <laughs> in the storms and kind of, he, he's got no sense of bearing or direction. I would imagine he was deli delirium as at setting at that point. Man, I, I, I can just only imagine where, <laughs> like, I don't like being cold, but that's a whole level of cold that- Yeah, it's gonna suck. Yeah. Melts your mind. So dad, Dusty and Patterson get back to the shop um, Patterson's wife, I believe, takes the husband, runs him into town so we can start getting medical treatment. And they take off, and Dad's driving the front end loader, Dusty's behind him in a grader, and then Patterson's behind him in a truck. And Dad's just trying to push through, you know, just pick these routes and go down with the front end loader to shove as much snow off as he can. Um, and every time he slips off the road and gets stuck, Dusty hooks up to him with the, the grader, pulls him, gets him back on the road, and this process just continues. And for hours, they're doing this. And at one point, Dad, you know, tells us, he's like, at one point, I'd slipped off the road, and just by happenstance, I just happened to look up on the hillside. Huh. Mom had taken the sleeping bag they were trying to use for, you know, warmth, and she was smart enough to hang it outside the cave. And huh. the sleep, sleeping bag fluttering there like a flag. So, of course, Dusty and them run up. Dad's getting the loader unstuck. Dusty and Patterson run up and find her and the baby, and they put the baby in a 
one of their like bags, their bags they were carrying for uh, clothes and stuff. So they've been basically carrying the baby on this little sled bag type thing. They find her, get her, bring her back in. Uh, she's frostbitten pretty severely. The oh, husband. Oh no. Other than the baby being a little dehydrated, the baby fine. Really? Um, I mean, just amazing. Um, so then we fast forward, and of course, this is national news back then. And my dad gets the call to go to New York for the first time in his life. <laughs> you know, growing up, I'm like, oh, New York, I'll never be there myself. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so he goes to New York to be on the Phil Donahue show. I, I think we still have the VHS somewhere recorded of dad being on Phil Donahue, Stolpa family, and Dusty and Patterson. Um, and then, of course, we fast forward a little more, and they make a made-for-TV movie with Neil Patrick Harris called Snowbound. <laughs> yeah, I, and I remember <laughs> watching that movie. I remember they were they were melting the snow. Uh, yep. They were melting the snow to drink it and everything. Yeah. So now, did, and, who, who played your? I'm sorry, Jack. Who played your dad in the movie? Uh, so in the movie, I just remember it's like at the very end where they kind of come into. Well, so here's the other thing with that. I I don't even think he was a credited actor that played kind of my dad because oh, okay because he got approached him Dusty and uh, Patterson got approached right away about selling their rights for this movie right. And, you know, the Stopa family has been through so much. We want nothing to do with it. You know, let them, you know, have the rights to all this. Uh, and I remember Dad still has. So the Stopas gave him this very nice blanket that he used to say, hey, this is my movie blanket for selling my rights to a movie. This is your, you know, your, your family heritage is right here in this blanket. You know, uh, just <laughs> truly awesome what they did, though, to allow the family to kind of, after everything they went through, you know, make the most of a, a really crappy situation. And then that was the, and then of course, as a result, that was the first person in your family to go on New York to be on a national uh, television show, right? A yes. talk show. A talk show, yeah. Of course, my dad's never going to let me do anything first, so he's all <laughs> right. <laughs> so you 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 grew up in the the hard the hard north of California, and um, you joined the army right like right out of high school, right? Yeah, I. You know, I graduated high school, um, didn't turn 18 till August. Well, I wanted to go right away. Uh, my dad said, no, he wouldn't sign for me at 17. I figured it was because he still needed help milking cows and digging. Yeah. <laughs> but as soon as I turned, uh, you know, my birthday was 17th of August. I signed the papers uh, on the 18th of August. And then I shipped off uh, for Fort Knox, Kentucky on 11 September 1999. 1990, and, and a lot of, so you, you're obviously known for uh, your actions in Afghanistan, and uh, at that time you were in a cavalry unit, but uh, you, didn't, you didn't start out in a cab, you were a tanker originally, correct? Yeah, yeah, so, they, so of course, going back to my, my, my dad's always involved in my life with all these things. Um, like, he was an infantry guy in Vietnam, did two tours, so when I told him I was going to join, the only advice he gave me, he's like, don't join the infantry, go find a real job. No. Okay. So you became a tanker where there's absolutely no civilian equivalent jobs out there. At least with no. infantry, you can go be a security was guard that, somewhere. Was that your first choice, tanker? Or was that like... No, actually, I wanted to be a cab scout when I first joined. Um, however, I also wanted to go to Germany. And okay. the only way I could get to Germany was being a tanker. And since they're both in the armor branch, of course, the recruiter's like, oh, 4187, you can, you can transfer. Part uh. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got me. So I can go to Germany at 18 years old, spend three years over there, and then, oh, this is sweet. Well, of course, that's, as we know, recruiters don't 
always tell the truth. <laughs> See, Jack, I told you every fucking time there's a lot. And it, like, I can't, nobody's given me a story yet. So that's not, no one's given that story yet. The best story we heard was Rich High. You guys know Angry Cops, right? Mm-hmm. So I talked to Angry Cops the other day because we were talking about what's the biggest bullshit recruiter story you heard. So Rich wanted to be a pilot, right? He wanted to be, um, uh, he wanted to be Apache pilot. And that's why he joined the army. That was his whole goal. The fucking recruiter was like, oh, you don't understand. Because he's like, well, I was going to go be a pilot over at the Air Force. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. And this was like right after 9-11. So the recruiter tells him, hey, we reactivated the Army Air Corps. And you can be a pilot through the army now if you sign up you don't have to go to the air force rich is like really and he's because you know who knew and just illegal lies unbelievable and he signed up because he thought and the guy said the same shit he's like oh you just do a branch transfer when you get there it takes like a couple months they're standing it up as we speak but the army air corps is now back because we have such a demand for mission we're gonna need more pilots like you they fucking said that lie so i mean that's like that might be the biggest I've heard so far, but it doesn't surprise me. That's a fucking, that's a fucked up lie. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I mean, especially since, you know, maybe a little history research, you'd realize the Army Air Corps hadn't been in existence since what? Long gone. You yeah. got to give them a little credit, yeah, though. Yeah, like, that was like made up on the fly. Like, I mean, for the recruiter to do it like that on the fly, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah my recruiter said I could uh, be like a Doolittle Raider if I wanted to. <laughs> they're, they're bringing back the Doolittle Boys. Just 4187 right into it. You guys are yeah. good. Magic yeah. form, 4187. It'll solve all your military problems. So you spent a few years in Germany then? Yeah, I did uh, three years in Germany. From Germany, re-enlisted, uh, went to Korea. Uh, I liked my time overseas. Really enjoyed so, it. So you pretty much spent the first half of your enlistment uh, overseas. Yep, three years in Germany, then 15 months in Korea. And then I was one of the lucky fool, few, fools few. Yeah, they got uh, deployed from Korea to Iraq my first time. Oh, no. 15 months to Korea and then a 13-month deployment to Iraq. So joined in 99, and I didn't step foot back in the States for a duty assignment until 2005. Wow. And so you'd already done a deployment in Iraq before you ever even went back to the States. So uh, were you, were you My overseas in? ribbon was strong with numbers. <laughs> were you rolling in, uh, in Iraq with tanks or were you dismounts at that time? Because I know that was a weird period where tanks were needed, but not in we were high still, numbers. So we were, yeah, we were, that was really a weird situation. Like I said, I was with a second ID out of Korea at that time. And they only took two companies out of our tank battalion to deploy. Hmm. We got attached with the first of the 506. So of course you, you're attaching heavy armor with these air, light airborne infantry guys to go to Iraq right. in 2004. And of course, where do they pick to, to put us? In a place called Habania, right in between oh. Mahdi and Dubu. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and of course that rivalry right at, right at first was like the infantry guys talking all sorts of shit to us tankers. And of course us lazy tankers talking all sorts of shit to them. But that combination though was uh, really effective for us. I mean, we were very kinetic. Uh, I mean, everything we were doing was strictly still mounted on tanks and like that old school tactics of roll the tanks into the, the villages and the cities. And you got the infantry guys there pulling that, you know, direct support. Yeah. Like world war two stuff there. Yeah. All the shit talking going back and forth. 
oh, we're better than you, and oh, you're better than us, and all that crap. You know, all of a sudden, it was like, no, we need you guys, and they need us. And, and of course, the infantry guys were all about, hey, just fire the main gun. Fire the main <laughs> gun. That's yeah. what they always, everyone always jokes, like, oh, man. Yeah, just fire the main gun. Everyone, everyone always says, oh, man, he's a pogue, he's a pogue. I'm like, yeah, but some pogues do awesome stuff. Some pogues do way better stuff than the infantry does. <laughs> Like uh, firing, firing, firing tank rounds in an urban area has got to be way more exciting than throwing some five, five, six rounds down there. <laughs> so I got to ask this, how did that work for you then? Did they, when you were done with your Iraq deployment, did you go back to South Korea and then deploy to the U.S.? No. So that was, uh, so that was a pretty dicey situation for the longest time because, of course, the rumor mills flying. Uh, we packed up everything we owned in Korea before we left and we're like, oh, we'll put it in storage somewhere for you. Don't worry about it. Just go overseas, you know, and it wasn't like we had maybe 30 days before we finally got notified because there was all this going back and forth of, nope, you got to go back to Korea, go back to your home unit, then you'll get PCS or ETS back to your wherever or, oh, no, you're going to go to Hood. Nope, you guys are going to go to Fort, uh, you know, Fort Benning. Nope, you yeah. guys are going to. I mean, just the rumor mills were just all over the map. Um, and then 30 days out, they finally said, yep, Fort Carson, you guys are going back to Fort Carson to reflag. Okay. And then the whole time, you went, what's that? You, you went to Carson and then you pretty much had to go back to Iraq soon after that, didn't you? Yeah, we had like a nine month break and then we rotated back for. <laughs> that the uh, they gave you nine months off. They're like, yeah, we'll just yeah. throw them right back. Well, and, you know, then it goes back to that 4187 my recruiter was telling me, how oh, just the 4187. Well, that was at the time period General Sinzeki was realizing, hey, you know, the tank, the mission of the tank, we're no longer really focused on the Soviets crossing full the gap and overrunning the European theater. We're this light fight, asymmetrical warfare. So we're going to shrink the armor branch on the, the tanker side and plus up the Delta side. So then my dreams came true finally after all those years and 4187's not going anywhere. I got voluntold that I was no longer going to be a tanker. I was now going to become a scout. And you and you'd already been in the army for seven or eight years at this point when that happened, right? Yeah, I was going on like six or yeah, six or seven at that point. Okay, um, about halfway through your, your army career. Yeah, I mean I was I was an E5 promotable, just waiting on points at that time. Took over a scout section. In fact I Took over a scout section, was a senior scout, and then the army still sent me to like level 10 reclass. <laughs> so, so you were, you were a cab scout during your second deployment to Iraq or, okay, yeah. gotcha. So you'd already, you gotten some time under the belt operating like that. And then you get back from Iraq, what year is that, 2007, 2008? So we went, that was our 2006 to 2008 deployment. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and, and then you go back to Fort Carson after that yep. and then you're going and then you're finding out you're going to Afghanistan I would imagine as soon as you got back yep. we yeah we had a you know the regular month of block leave and stuff and then started revamping getting everyone back and very quickly it was hey the next deployment's Afghanistan to get ready and so did you had about 13 months to prep for that one or a little less was the op tempo getting you by that time? I'm just curious. I mean, I know we were all kind of in it, but. So this is going to sound horribly messed up, but it's a true statement. The army and the deployments was the best thing that ever happened in my marriage. Um, Cause every time I got tired of my ex, I got to go overseas. <laughs> 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 you know, you know what? Good for you, I'm glad to hear that you said that. 
<laughs> there's thousands of men and women who have served in the armed forces out there that are saying he ain't wrong. He, you know what? He absolutely good for you. You know, and that's more of a thing. Keeping marriages, you know, longer because you're right. At least it takes her out of uh, the situation. So I applaud you for at least being honest about the situation. But I know that was a that was a rough fucking ramp up for those years. But I, I, I'm with you. The good part was when I was, at least for me, I was married at the time to another op, to a female officer. And, and um, it was good because, like you just said, we were on different deployment cycles. So I'd come home and then she'd leave. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, so I can absolutely, I, I, I agree with you. So Uncle Sammy really wanted to make sure my life was the least decent. And then at the end of it, I was like, yeah. And I'll be the first one to admit it. Hey, everybody, and, and, and because it doesn't matter, I know for a fact that she slept with a specialist and she was a commission officer. So I'm so glad that she got Jody and I got the fuck rid of her. So thank you, everybody. And, um, and I was smart. So I never got myself into a marriage at a young age where I had to deal with any crap while I was going overseas. So just want to state that for the record. I'm, I'm surprised, though, for you, Jack, because I think, you, you know, you'd like to be in relationships, though. Not to get off the subject, yeah, but you didn't like get into the like you didn't like find that deployment marriage like to kind of keep you whole. Yeah, I, you I would think Jack more as a investment type of marriage guy. Hey, if we get married before this deployment, I can get BAH and we can bank a lot. I'm, I I would be a prime candidate for that. You you would think, but I actually during that time range, I was that time range. I was very wary about. It. I was watching, you know, and I, I grew up in an area where like it was. I grew up in an area where you were, you waited till you were a little older to get married. I think that kind of uh, bled over into the military, even though everybody else was doing it. It was very tempting to go get hitched because a the financial benefits. That's right. B you just need to feel like with someone when you're going through all this crap. So Clint, you 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 went through Afghanistan, and um, you know as 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 we stated earlier, uh, that was a deployment that. Uh, as a result, you received a Medal of Honor and you were involved with a very big firefight uh, during that deployment. And from what I understand, that happened early on in the deployment. Is that correct? Yeah, it was uh, about our first three months uh, into that deployment on a 12-month uh, hitch, which, you know, was also one of the coolest things I got to see, though, is, I mean, that day is a huge day in my life. Uh, got to be around some amazing dudes, but it was also amazing to see nine more months of those guys powering through. I mean, that's what when I talk about what happened that day, it's like, okay, you went through all that and you were done. It was like, no, no, there's nine more months. These guys continue to just push through and, and, and drive on. And that is, man, that is something awesome to witness. Yeah. And I, 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 uh, I highly suggest anybody uh, go, if you haven't yet, go out and pick up a copy of Red Platoon, read about that. We don't have enough time to go through everything that's, uh, beautifully detailed in that book, but that's the most amazing. I mean, to me, that's one of the craziest elements of it is like that the intensity of that fight alone, and then you guys get back to the rear, and they gave you a couple days off, and then boom, you're right back at, at, yeah. with with all the with all the the loss of equipment and obviously personnel. They put you guys right back out there. And I looked at that situation though as I think. You know, I don't think there's ever a right or a wrong. Well, there's always a wrong way to do something. Let's not kind of beat around the bush on that. Right. <laughs> right. I looked at the mentality of it, though. It's like the longer you stay down and, and think about those things and let them beat you up, the harder it is to get back in the saddle. 
and watching those guys, you know, they never replaced the guys we lost, but they, they stepped up and, and made their own pass. And then continued. And that's got to be difficult in their situation to, to replace. Yeah, you know, I mean, some really crucial. We lost, you know, three team leaders from my platoon. I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road in the platoon where you're, you're team leaders. Uh, and then, you know, Specialist Mace, one of the huge personalities to the lower list. And like I said, you could never replace those personalities. But seeing guys like Specialist Raz and stuff step up and now become an NCO and, and emulate all the lessons he learned from Gallegos and, and Kirk and them was awesome to see. Everyone didn't take it as a loss. They looked at it as a, a, a hole to kind of fill. And, and did, guys pushed forward and did that. So and I they have, promoted – I'm sorry. I, I just – yeah, I, I was just going to ask if they promoted within the platoon. Um, we, did, uh, we, we tried as much as we could. And then, of course, we got some other uh, replacements in. And that was the other critical thing that I thought was awesome to see with the guys was, like, we get these replacements in, and it was established right away with me and Lieutenant Butterman. Look, these guys aren't replacements. They're, you're, you're not going to sit there and say, well, you weren't there on October 3rd that day. You don't know what it's really like. like right. oh, if I ever hear that statement out of any one of your mouths, it's going to be a, a really bad day for you. These are our new brothers. We'll incorporate them just like the ones we lost. And we're going to push forward with this whole brotherhood teammate. And, team. yeah. and because you have nine more months of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that, that actually leads me to what I was just going to ask was, did, I mean, looks like, like Jack said, and, and you put it perfectly, Jack, like, um, listen, you need to read red platoon, right? I mean, because that actually does justice to what happened that day. The Netflix special is one thing, but it doesn't capture really the spirit of what took place from everybody's perspective and leadership. Uh, it doesn't, not, not even by far. Like anybody can read whatever they want. They can say they can watch that show. That, although I will say, and I think you and Clint, you and I actually talked about this at one time, that it, the, the Netflix special, when it comes to you and speaking about like the lessons learned and, your, and the friendship and the camaraderie you know, from the battlefield, that was so well done. Like they shot that. That was just fucking, that was great. Um, and that's what I think people need to see. I think you watch both to get it, but the, the book actually captures it very well. I, I, have, I do have a question though. Did you feel, or I don't know if anybody else felt this. Did you guys recognize, I mean, I, listen, I know it, it, it was an atrocious day, but did you guys recognize the, the, the special, like the uniqueness of that day? Like, when it happened i mean there's i don't know there's many battles where you have two medal of honor recipients that come out of a battle you know reflecting back on that time honestly i like i know just personally for me that day felt like the first day i ever did my job in the army which was really huge. and you've been in firefights before i would imagine yeah. Yeah, yeah that was like the first day i was like oh i finally earned my paycheck today because this is what you know in the the, the young mind of a an, an american and you watch Rambo movies and all this, you know, right. stuff before you, you think every day in combat is going to be that day. Right. And you very and combat and you realize, all right, what I thought it was is, and you can ask any combat veteran that they'll tell you the same thing. Combat is not what you see on TV. It's not right. what you can imagine. And until you've been through it, you, you just can't wrap your head around it. So for me, that day felt like the first day I ever did my job. Um, there very quickly, you know, we got, we got done. We kind of had a little break kind of wrapped our heads around it. You know, the awards process immediately kind of got started. We knew it was something big, but honestly, at that time, yeah. a lot of people were like thinking, oh, if one silver star comes out of this, this, you know, this is, this is what we signed up to do. And I had an old first arm from my second deployment, uh, first arm Overa, who used to 
rip on us all the time. And he had this saying, it's like, oh, you guys, you guys never do your job unless you're in combat. The only time you actually do your job is when you get shot at. Everything else <laughs> is training for your job. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he's right. That's what we signed up to do. And yeah, we did that day. And then it was also that mentality of we really put a pause and tried to emphasize that in the platoon that what happened that day, we, we need to just kind of put it in a box and put it on a shelf for right now because we have nine more months. Let's worry about tomorrow instead of what happened yesterday. Let's take our lessons learned from yesterday and all our past experience, but let's get to tomorrow. And then once we get to tomorrow, nine months from now, and we're back in the States, then we can take a, a break, take a breath, reflect. And then of course, all that time had gone by and yeah, you started seeing, you know, silver stars come out right away. And then things kind of silenced for a while. And then all of a sudden I'm getting phone calls. Hey, come to DC. We got something to tell you. Oh, so let, let's talk about that timeline because so you, you got, you got back from deployment and you, you weren't in the army. You were in the army for a couple more years after that Afghanistan deployment, right? Yeah. I got back in uh, 2010 and had about a year and a half. Um, and in, in my mind, before going on that deployment in 2009, like I never thought I was going to make the army a career. In fact, I, that was never, ever my uh, intention. I just really liked going overseas and being with those guys. And you had mentioned to me before you uh, were, were getting right to that point where the, the E7 part was starting to creep in and you weren't comfortable. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you generally weren't comfortable with that idea. Is that right? So my mentality, like, like, I really like being a staff sergeant. I like being a section sergeant. I never wanted to be behind a desk. Um, and I, you know, it was coming to the time I knew I was coming up on 10 years. If I reenlisted again, I'd be indefinite. I never wanted to be behind a desk. And from the day I joined the army, um, I said, there'd be a couple of places I'd never go. Fort Knox, Kentucky, <laughs> Texas, and Fort Benning, Georgia. Well, I got back from, well, I was about to get back from that deployment. I pulled orders for Fort Benning. So that was kind of the, one of the many decisions that built up, but it was like, I got orders for Benning and I'm like, went to go see my Sergeant Major. And I don't know, I'll tell you this. I feel like I'm probably the only Medal of Honor recipient that signed a deck statement. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like what's, what's a deck statement? You're, you're, you're not going anywhere. Like, you're not going anywhere. It's yeah. like, the Army says, here's orders for you to go do something. And if you don't want to go do it, you've got to sign this that bars you from reenlistment. Yeah. Bars you from, oh yeah. You're literally done. Like you're done. You're, you're fucking time in the army is done. You were doing nothing. When I first joined and I got orders to Benning and you're saying I can't get out of them. Send me that deck statement. I'll sign it right. I'll see you. Oh yeah. I am stupid, stupid, huh? Wait, wait, let me ask you this. So, and I, if I don't know that, how do I not know this? So, wow. That's the army though, right? I mean, let's be honest, the military in a fucking nutshell. You yeah. go through that, they know there was a, it was a significant, you know, tour just in general. And they're like, you know what? Send him to Fort, let's go send him to fucking Fort Benning. I mean, yeah, Fort, I mean, what's worse? Fort Hood or Fort Irwin would have been about it. Or let's just put your ass in Fort Polk for that matter. I mean, I just, that's shocking to me. I understand the logic of, yeah. You know, taking your combat guys and putting them back into the training environment to pass on that information and that knowledge. Also, I understand the reality of trade-off where uh, they're telling you what you have to teach might not particularly be what is- It's no different than- to learn. It's the way we do national standardized testing and everything like that. We're basically stripping away the teacher's ability 
to instill actual knowledge in the students and we're giving a base thing that's supposed to apply to children in every single background from all over the place like you know teaching's a little more nuanced than like this is the way it is like yeah your, here, your experience is a whole you know in a world or a you know a, a country of 290 million people yeah okay right right but so by no means am I blaming the art. I mean, I was, I was stubborn. I, I made a choice and I was like, right. I, yeah. Fort Benning, never, never going to happen ever <laughs> to the point of, yeah, my stubbornness thing. I'll, I'll send that deck statement. I don't care. That's common so you, sense though. That's not stubbornness, but anyway. <laughs> you did your last, uh, you did your last uh, few months in the army and did you know what you were going to do from there? Did you have a plan or did, did you just kind of wing it at that point? So as I was, you know, I got back and I knew I had about that, that year, a little over a year left uh, before I was going to ETS out. And one thing I always harped on my soldiers was, hey, don't, don't get out because you hate the Army and just say you're going to college. Have a plan. Right. You have a plan, and if you have that plan, at least have two or three to fall back on. Yeah, and you had a family and everything. To I'm going to go to college. And they get out, and they have a little break and transition, and they never really either start college or they do, but it seemed like in eight months, they were calling me up saying, hey, I'm signing back up to civilian work, what I thought. I, I didn't get a job. I didn't go to college. So, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a hypocrite, so I was going to, you know, practice what I preached. So initially, I started doing the legwork, um, and I was trying to get on with Department of Energy doing uh, convoy security for nuclear waste transport. It's good money. Good money. Another federal job. I can transfer in, buy my time back, be on the same yeah. retirement path. And in fact, I'm doing basically the things I was doing as a scout with route reconnaissance, route security, and, and talking to the recruiter. And he, that's a big thing he's telling me is, hey, we like the Army guys, because unlike the law enforcement guys, we need guys that understand how to use crew serve weapons. We're not teaching that. So you got to know it before you get here. All right, cool. So I'm going through that process. Well, it turns out it's like one of the only federal jobs where they don't give you a waiver for hearing. So like... Five months before I'm actually about to get out, this whole thing falls out from underneath. Which I would imagine after three deployments and 12 years as a tanker and everything like that, you, you had some trouble here. Well, let's not forget, I grew up with a family with no health insurance and I had quite a few uh, ear infections as a child. So. Wait, did you, did you have to, did you go crazy doing the hearing test like to try to get in? Remember that, that, that fucking horrible beeping thing? Was that? Well, this is the one time my, my recruiter helped me instead of telling me to fill out a 4187. He said, if you just look to the guy to your left and right and push the button when they do, you'll be fine. Ah, that's a good advice, I never even thought about it. <laughs> that's pretty good, <laughs> I like that a lot. Actually, I'm writing that down because I'm telling people that too. <laughs> that's kind of, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's how uh, Harry Truman, uh, famous story about Harry Truman, he passed his exam to get in the United States Army uh, by basically memorizing the test because he had like the mo most terrible eyes on earth. Oh man. Are you serious? Yeah, Harry Truman, like he just had terrible, I mean, you saw he wore, he yeah. always wore those Coke yeah. bottle glasses. The yeah. guy was, he couldn't see anything, but he memorized the test. That's how he got into the army. And he was a great soldier. He was a highly decorated soldier during World War I. That's a fucking dedication. I'm gonna tell you that right now. That's someone who, I mean, we can't get people nowadays. Well, that, that goes back to that standardized testing though. There's not one perfect way to do everything and everyone's right. different to be successful. So. I can't get my so, neighbors not to put 10 people together around here. And this guy's memorizing a fucking standardized <laughs> test for Christ's sake. I'm, just, I'm kind of disappointed that we've gone so far away from society. Just got to start saying that everyone has to eat chili beans at least once a day and you'll have that social distancing down pretty quick. 
It's not, yeah. It should be the mandated food. It'll work. So, so the Department of Energy thing fell through. That fell through. And then, so like I said, I, I, I knew from early on, uh, I was never going to go to college. Like me in college, I don't learn that way. I'm a hands-on guy. So I started looking at the trades. I wanted to start, I was looking at linemen schools. I was looking at- uh, Good money. Yep, good money there. Uh, I was looking at just in Colorado, south of Pueblo. Uh, they just built a new factory building uh, the big wind uh, turbines. Uh, that was offering positions. So I started systematically going through and looking at these trade schools I could start. Well, also around that time, though, the Army was transitioning, and I was one of those guys that fell in the gap of I qualified for the uh, GI Bill, but I also served long enough to be with the post-9-11 GI. Mm -hmm. Well, the post-9-11 paid better and had a lot better yes. options. However, they still hadn't certified all the trade schools that the GI Bill used to recognize. So I was thinking, all right, I kind of got to wait for this to clear up because I don't want to go spend money on a trade school that might not be recognized later. Yeah, I'll make it up in the end. But in the same process, my brother-in-law, who had been working the oil fields for years and years and always kept trying to tell me, hey, get out of the Army, come work the oil fields because a little bit of common sense, you can go a long ways. Uh, I, can, I can testify to that, yeah. And, and it was at that time, North Dakota was just starting to boom. And yes. And they literally, my brother-in-law was like, literally, if you can fog a mirror, you can get a job. Yeah. This will help kind of bridge that gap between me getting out and getting an employment right away and to see what this 9-11 GI Bill was going to do to transition into a trade. So I came up to North Dakota. Uh, you know, of course, I was one of those dirtbag NCOs that would always get in good with the S1 guy and make him lose my leave forms. So I had like 90 days of terminal leave saved up. So I spent my first month of leave uh, fly fishing in Colorado. Second month of leave, I finished the hardwood floors at the house and my, my youngest son was born. Uh, the third month I came up to kind of double up on a paycheck with the army and start a, new, uh, start a new job. Got up to the oil fields, started working on a hydro excavator truck as a little swamper, um, turning mud into, or turning dirt into to mud with this little wand and sucking it up and they were paying good money. It was, yep a little bit of physical labor, but very quickly I transitioned, got my commercial driver's license, start, started driving the trucks. Uh, the company recognized, you know, from just my work ethics and having a little bit of that common sense. All of a sudden, within six months, I was managing all the hydro excavators for the company I was working for. Right. Fast forward a little Because you'd long. be amazed how many morons there are in the oil field. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> proportionally, maybe a little more than most places. But... <laughs> At least, it's, it's, I, I have a question then. Um, so, and this, I don't, I don't know. Just to go back a little bit, did the did the army at any time when you got the mention that you're being awarded the medal? Did they ask if you wanted to come back in? Oh. Yes, uh, I sat down shortly after being told I'd be receiving the medal because um, there was a, so let me back up a little bit. So by the time that battle had gotten done and I'd gotten out, uh, initially after the, the battle, my commander said, hey, how do you feel about me putting you in for a DSC, Distinguished Service Cross? Right. And I was like, you know, I really don't care nine more months. I just want to get through this. Do whatever you feel like, sir. Right. And I didn't pay no never mind to it. So then did my last time in the army, got out, was out for almost a year before I even got a phone call. And they didn't even tell me over the phone anything until I got to DC for the first time in person. And they said, hey, I got recommended for upgrade. 
which is, you know, kind of one of these, right, whatevers. Uh, and then shortly after, I got to go sit down and meet with the uh, Sergeant Major of the Army at the time, Sergeant Major Chandler. Yeah. And of course, like I said, I was always, uh, <laughs> I was a very stubborn individual. Um, so I'm sitting there with Sergeant Major of the Army Chandler, and we're sitting in his office, we're kind of chit-chatting. And of course, he brings that up. Hey, Sergeant Romache, you know, you did uh, 12 years, you know, eight more and you could retire. Um, you know, what would you want to do? You kind of got an open ticket. And I said, well, I want to go back overseas. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I was like, I want to go back to the line with the platoon and go right back overseas. And he's like, well, that'll never happen again. Yeah, you can thank, you can thank oh, John no, Bassalone for ruining yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to say, it. that's yeah. exactly right. Bassalone ruined for everybody. But, <laughs> and he's like, so that's not going to happen. I was like, well, I guess me never coming back in the Army is also not going to happen. I love it. I, they're so stubborn about that. I, it's, it's insane. I mean, I, I'm sure I could have came back in and done something. Right. Just for me, that was, that was my niche. That's what I wanted to do was just. Right. But they, they, you know that they would have turned you into a propaganda piece or. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, well, and then the other funny part of that conversation, though, too, was like Sergeant Major was like, hey, so I'm kind of curious. You were in for 12 years. You got looked at for E7 three times. How come you never made seven? And I was like, well, I don't know. He's like, you know, the other thing, we're, we're trying to find your DA photo. Yeah. Like, okay. Okay. And he's like, well, do you have a copy of it? I'm like, oh, no, it doesn't exist. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I, I never took a DA photo. He's like, yeah, but you got looked at for E7 three times. And I'm like, I know. And if you don't have your photo, they never look at you to promote and they just throw your packet to the side <laughs> and he's like so you deliberately didn't want to get promoted and i'm like that is correct that is yep correct. he didn't know what to say to you at that point huh is that the shit the oh, no, I mean, this is a guy that the reason obviously the reason why he's the sergeant major of the army is he had career goals so meeting someone like you had to just blow his mind can you imagine? Like, he was stuck, right? Because he had nowhere to go with you. I'm sure that kind of locked his brain up there for a bit. But it's like, you know, we all have our own different passions. Mine wasn't, I didn't, I didn't care about making a rank. I just cared about taking guys. So they, so you're, you're with him and, and what do they do? They, they put you in a room and they're like, hey, we're giving you this medal. Sorry, we couldn't do it over the phone. Sorry for wasting your time bringing you all the way out. How does that work? So that worked with, like I said, I was working the oil fields. Um, yeah, I was out for almost, almost a little over a year. And all of a sudden my phone rings. And of course I look down and it's a number I don't recognize. And I answer and it's, hey, this is Colonel Davis G1 from the Pentagon. Who am I speaking with? And how's Clint? Well, can you verify? It's former Staff Sergeant Clint Ramache. Of course he's like, hey, uh, we need you to come to DC. We got to tell you something. We can't tell you over the phone. I'm like, well, that's cool because that's why we have these sweet cell phones. Because <laughs> <laughs> tell anybody anything. <laughs> well, we got to do it here in person. And of course, immediately I'm like, oh, crap, what did I do? You know, it's like, did a lot of right. You think you think there's a warrant waiting now for you? Right. Family. That's what I'm thinking too. Right. What would yeah. you be thinking? <laughs> like, what's the statute of limitations, man? Crap. <laughs> yeah. I was a PFC. It was Germany. Okay, I had a couple drinks. I didn't know that that car was not being operated by its previous owner. Okay, I was like, oh, they finally tracked down the guy that's yeah. half track in front of a brigade headquarters. Yeah. 
one six three armor back in two thousand. Yeah. So they fly you out to DC. Fly me out to DC, and I get there, and I'm still, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, it's probably going to be. It, I gotta ask this: They put you in coach or first class? Oh, coach, baby. Say oh, bastards. Shit. bastards. Oh, those fucks. Shoot That's bastards. terrible. What a terrible thing. They didn't put you up front. They got those fucking guys like from AIT, like, you know, when they're in the airport in Atlanta, they're like, oh, you could take my seat. The guy's yeah. getting a medal of honor. They're like, fuck him, put him by the toilet in the back. Yeah. <laughs> put him in row 45B. Yeah. What yeah. about middle seat? Was it a middle seat or did it at least give you a fucking uh, I don't, I don't, I'm sure they just looked at my DD-214 and like, hey, he was a former tanker. He could fit in a really small group. Yeah. <laughs> They're like you just stand in the back, Mr. Robinson. You're fine. I just go into the the, the overhead bin, you know. <laughs> so they so they say what you land at Reagan and they take you straight to the Pentagon or what? Yeah, I land at Reagan, and this is the first time I've ever been really to the East Coast. Uh, the only other time was back in high school when I flew back when my brother was getting out of the army out of Fort Drum. You know, flew back right. and watching your dad go on Donahue. And, yeah, watching dad on Donahue. It's like, oh. Yeah. And his grand stories of, hey, they sent a limo to pick us up. Uh, <laughs> have one of those big brick phones in the back. So I, yeah, I land and all of a sudden I get off the plane, just pass through security. And of course, here's a full bird colonel in full waist, uh, full dress blues. And I was like, well, this is really awkward because. Very formal. I'm a, I'm a dirtbag staff sergeant that doesn't take his DA photo. And yeah. I've got this little bird waiting for me in class A's. I was like, this is, yeah, that sucks for you, sir. <laughs> That's great. Metro, which never been on a Metro, never really been on public transportation per se, other than a cattle truck and a C-130. They put you on they put the you on a metro? metro? Oh my God. The fastest way to get to, I guess, the Pentagon. I didn't know any better. No, well, I, know, I guess still, the, the colonel doesn't have a driver? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Well, I'm sure a colonel at the Pentagon is really like a PFC at the. Oh, that yeah, he, that is. They're nobody at the Pentagon, yeah. Yeah, but it's but he's getting a, the Medal of Honor. I would. I'm, I'm getting more disappointed by this story. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a budget cut. Don't worry about it. We didn't have the funding. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. So, yeah, we show up, get off the metro, go stroll into the Pentagon. I'm like, ooh, this is a cool building that I never thought I'd ever see. But yeah. right, yeah. a lot of security. Yeah. We walk inside and all of a sudden there's all these colonels, generals, et cetera. Hey, congratulations. You know, still in the back of my mind, it's like, okay, I'm probably going to go in this little room. They're going to say, here's, you know, whatever. Shake my hand, take a picture, put me back on the plane. I'll go home, get back to work in the oil field on Monday. Well, we go in and of course, the army is never going to pass up the opportunity to have a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> of course, that tunes me out right away as I sit down at this big long table they got the projector going, and of course, PowerPoint's on display, ready to go. Um, but as I sat down, there's three posters in front of me. And the first one is Sal Junta, the first living uh, recipient from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Then Leroy Petrie, Mr. Hand Grenade Thrower. And, yep. and then Cern Sabo, a Vietnam Possums uh, Medal of Honor recipient. So, of course, I look down, I see that, I just kind of start zoning. I'm like, this doesn't add up. And of course they start their brief and they're clicking through slides and they're talking and I'm not listening to a fricking word. And all of a sudden I look up and I'm like, Hey, timeout guys. Um, what is all this medal of honor stuff? I got put in for a DSC. So what, what is this? And one of the colonels or whatever generals kind of looks over and he's like, Oh, you don't know Sergeant Ramache? Well, sir, I wouldn't ask that fucking question if I knew the answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, 
Well, you've been uh, recommended for upgrades, so short of the president signing your award, you'd be receiving uh, the Medal of Honor. And it was just like immediately like, for what? Didn't do anything. Like I said, it felt, when I look back to that day, even during that day, that felt like the first day I ever did my job in the Army. So why am I getting recognized for doing my job? Why am I, why am I getting recognized for, you know, something that eight other men right. gave their lives that day off? Mm-hmm. It's just really a weird thing. I would, I would imagine there was a flood of emotions going on at the time. Yeah, it was, I don't want to be here with all these silly officers asking really stupid questions. Yeah. So how long did they have you there before they, they cut you loose? And, and, and how long from the time they told you at the Pentagon that you were getting this to the actual awards ceremony at the White House itself? So I was, I was there in that meeting or briefing for probably an hour, hour and a half. And then very quickly after that, though, I got to go over and meet General Foley. Uh, he's a retired three-star from Vietnam, Medal of Honor recipient. Um, so I guess- he just, hangs, he just hangs out at the Pentagon? No, he was actually at the time running uh, Army Emergency Relief. Uh, oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I got to go do an office call with him. And of course, that's, you know, the first time I ever met a Medal of Honor recipient that's retired. Right. And sat down and had a conversation with him for, shoot, about two hours. And, you know, one of the big things he told me, because I asked him, I'm like, sir, you know, I got put in for a DSC. You know, now they're saying I get a medal. This doesn't make sense. Why me? And he kind of cuts me off. And he's like, Clint, that is what all of us have said. Why us? And he's like, it's because the guys on the ground that day believe that you did something special. And it's mm-hmm. that this is what it is. So that kind of put things into perspective. So then we'll fast forward to your second question on that was, so that was in October of 11. Mm-hmm. Oh, so there was a couple years. Yeah, there's um, time there. October 12, sorry. Okay. October 2012, which of course we all remember 2012 was an election year. Yeah. Right. And of course, Clint being the dirtbag that he is, you know, I, I never want to think badly about things, but I also think badly about things. And the, the biggest thing is like, Next month, October, November, we're having a presidential election. And I told uh, the Pentagon and the White House, I was like, I will not receive, I will not accept this before the election. I just don't want to be in the middle of any sort of political anything or have any of that attached to it. So that's amazing that you kind of had that foresight. And then uh, it wasn't until February of 13 that they actually present it then. So they waited till after the inauguration, which, you know, I was totally cool with them. Yeah, so we're talking about a three or four month time span or about four months. So do you remember that period very vividly or is it kind of a blurry? Uh, because, I mean, you were being wined and dined. You were yeah. meeting the president. You were obviously from so, the ceremony itself. In between that, so like the White House actually is the one that made the official announcement. And they don't make the official announcement to like 30 days before the ceremony happens. Mm-hmm. I got back to North Dakota in, in October, and of course the army is going to tell you don't say anything to anybody. Right. They want to keep things secret or whatever. So, you know, I kind of got back and it was just like, all right, um, put my head down and I'll, I'll just get back to work. And whenever they call me, if that's in a month or 10 years from now, because you just didn't know. It's like, I'll just get back to try to get back to life as normal. Uh, but the one thing they did was Leroy Petrie, he reached out to me and he started mentoring me in anticipation to come up to the ceremony. So me and him would talk on the phone 
uh, and Leroy's an amazing dude. Uh, Great dude. I, he, yeah. I just saw him about a month ago. He randomly swung into the Black Rifle office while I was just kind of <laughs> hanging out around the front doors. I was, I hadn't seen him since we did the movie together. I was like, dude, what are you doing here? Like, there was like, nobody knew you were, he just came in. No, didn't tell anybody. And, and there was a, there was a picture of you on the wall. There's a picture of you yeah. in the Black Rifle office, like right there. I'm like, hey, look what it is on the wall right there. I think I have that picture, actually. I was just thinking about that, too. Jack, because we walked through there, I always took that picture of you. And, like, you're covered in blood because it's from the movie. It's like you're, yeah. like you're in your yeah, we just gotten done filming character. Leroy lost his arm, his other arm again. <laughs> I think that's exactly, so, yeah, so, that's the moment, right? It, I got to remember when that was, but I think I actually have that picture. It's a good picture. Leroy was, and Leroy was obviously, he was still in the Army at this time, so he yeah. was... Um, he was already kind of, I would imagine he'd been used to the dog and pony show a little bit at that point. Yeah. And that's, you know, Leroy was, I mean, he was super helpful with one of the big things. He's like, look, a lot of things are going to come at you at once. He's like, just don't be afraid to say no to things. The army is going to want to try and get you to do that. Just hate. And the good news is you're not contractually obligated to the army like he is. Unlike me, you are no longer in the army. You don't have to do a thing they say. And it's all right. Well, and, and so that brings that to the story of actually going to the, uh, going to DC for the ceremony. Uh, cause a couple of weeks before it happened, I got invited to go to the state of the union with, uh, Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. And of course, at first I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm like a, I'm a fish. I, I grew up milking cows. So to put me next first lady, <laughs> right. State of the union, I'm, I'm a little out of my element here, but of course, talking to people that are smarter than me and they're like, you know, Clint, we understand you, you know, you're, a smart guy that likes politics and understands all, all this stuff. And he's like, this is the one moment where all of our political figureheads get together and it really represents what this country stands for in unity. Mm-hmm. You know, union is a, an amazing thing. Like, you know, you know, I, I might not ever have this opportunity uh, again, let alone having it the first time. So I said, yes, I was like, yep, I'd, I'd love to be, uh, you know, her guest. Well, of course, with the army and scheduling and all sorts of crap like that, comes time for my ceremony and, and what we realized is the way it was scheduled now was the last day I was there in DC when the army had their ceremony at the Pentagon was going to be the same day as the uh, State of the Union and the way it was going to work out is I was going to go do that ceremony have 30 minutes with my boys for the one last time before we all split past and a lot of us hadn't seen each other since 2009 the end of that the- that's a special moment for you to reunite with your friends your bros yeah and i'm sitting there and i'm like crap and i i don't like to tell people i'm going to do something to not do it but i already told the first lady i'd be her guest but now i only have the last day i'm going to see these guys 30 minutes to hang out with them and i'm just like i don't know what to do and leroy comes up and he's like hey man you know because the day before that i was receiving it at the white house and he's like hey man you're going to see the president here tomorrow just tell him you don't want to go and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of a, that's kind of an awkward thing to do. To <laughs> how, how often does uh, a, a farm boy from uh, Cal, rural California get to tell the president of the United States of America? No. Well, that, that was a, Yeah, that was a tense time because I'm just sitting there kind of twisted up inside of, I've already made a commitment and a promise. So yet I just really want to hang out with my boys. And finally, we go into the Oval Office president signs the award. He meets me and my family. We're hanging out for a bit and I'm trying to build the courage and just, you know, get being over in combat is to me, that was easy. That's not that. I mean, it's scary, but it's not like that scary where it's yeah. the president. <laughs> hey man, I'm going to 
deuce out on you and go hang out with my boys. And we were literally about to walk in for the ceremony when I finally look over him. I'm like, hey, you know, Mr. President, uh, no disrespect, nothing like that. But tomorrow is my last day to hang out with my boys. And I know I said I'd go to the State of the Union with uh, Michelle, but I'd rather just go hang out with my boys tomorrow night and drink beer with them. And That's great. That's great. Without missing a beat, because we're walking in front of everyone else, and it's me and him side by side. He just looks back at Michelle and he goes, Hey, Michelle, you're going to have to find someone else to go with tomorrow because uh, Clint's going to go hang out with his boys. <laughs> walking like nothing. <laughs> That is so great. So he took, you know, he, he took it, he took it well. <laughs> That's, there's no one else that actually probably could tell a story like that in the world, by the way. You might be the only guy. That's, 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 that's admirable, if anything. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, so, so obviously you didn't make it to the State of the Union, but you did make it to the White House later for the ceremony. Um, and, you know, just, just from the ceremony itself, and then obviously you went on a media blitzkrieg after that. Yeah. Um, going back to my earlier question, do you remember that time frame vividly or is it a blur to you? Uh, most of it's a blur. Um, and that was kind of, so what they wanted me to do is they wanted me to go to New York for a week. Then they wanted me in Chicago for a week. And then they wanted me in California for a week. So it was like your East Coast tour, your Midwest tour, and then your West Coast tour. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was like, I was still working oil fields. I'm, I told him, you got a week and that's it. I'll give you, I'll give you new New York. My dad's been there and I got to yeah. get back up on him. So I'll, I'll do the New York thing. But it was like, man, just that entire week from morning till night was just jam packed with going to meet like Jamie Dimon for an office call and meeting uh, wow. yeah. uh, Roger Goodell and, um, doing interviews with, you know, David Lowe. Well, I was going to say the biggest, I mean, you were on uh, carrying on the family tradition of going on a successful talk show. You were on the, one of the biggest nighttime shows ever. You know, that was actually that. So that was funny. Cause like I said, the night before I was hanging out and drinking beer with my boys. Right. Mm -hmm. And we had to be up at five o'clock in the morning to uh, catch the plane to New York. And that next morning, that's the president calling back. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to know if you're coming back to the State of the Union, apparently. <laughs> no, I think my, uh, my youngest son FaceTiming me because I mess with him every time he's on his stuff. <laughs> ah, good for you. Good boy. I love it. Just like dad. <laughs> so, so, like I said, uh, we had to be up at like four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning to get to New York. And uh, of course, we stayed up pretty late that night before. Um, having a few cocktails with my boys mm -hmm. and, you know get up get ready basically pack drunk the night before just through <laughs> yeah landed in uh landed in new york and it was like hey we got to go over to do the letterman show because i record in the morning yeah and i'm like i'm hungover i'm not really feeling it but whatever i uh, show up they want me to wear my class a's and of course i was like all right i can do that well i as you know, I can kind of grow some facial hair pretty quickly. Right. <laughs> so we show up, and of course, the public affairs lady that's with us, uh, Master Johnson, that's on the Army side running all the PR stuff, she is just flipping her shit. Uh, you need to shave. You are in official military uniform. Yeah. You need to shave and be presentable. And of course, I'm like, 
So, uh, no, I don't because I'm just not feeling this. No. Yeah, I, I could wear a tux. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you're out of the military. They really made, they re that's insane. Well, that was, that was the back and forth with, uh, yeah, I could, I could do that, but you also can't tell me to do that. And I probably should, but you guys also, after I told you not to, you scheduled things super early the next morning after the last night of hanging out with my boys. Yeah. yeah. So. Also uh, to, to, to paraphrase Dave Chappelle here, like what are they gonna do? Not put me on the show. You had, you had the leverage right there. <laughs> so we get there and we get in the green room and getting all ready. And, uh, and, and I apologize because I can't remember the stage manager's name, uh, but he was always the guy with the headset that Dave would cut over and ask questions. He was a Vietnam vet and I'm sitting there and I'm just, he can see, I'm not really feeling this. I, he knows I'm, he can just see that I am not used to the limelight, the attention. This is all very awkward. Right, you're not, you're not an actor. You're not a musician. You're not a freaking. Um, you're, you, you're, you're not even like an astronaut who's used to having to do interviews. You know what I mean? Like you're a guy that went from a freaking cab scout one moment to an oilman to, Hey, by the way, everybody in America wants to see you. Yeah. <laughs> and he's sitting there and he's, you know, and he's kind of seen that we've had this little altercation where I was like, I'm, I'm not feeling the shaven thing. I'll wear the uniform kind of going back and forth. And he comes over and, you know, we're sitting there chit chat and find out he's a Vietnam vet. And he goes, Hey. Uh, I'm going to run down to Dwayne Reed. I'll grab you a razor and uh, some shaving cream. You can, you can shave here in the green room if you want, if not, but I'll go get that for you. And I was like, man, that, that's freaking awesome. You know, that guy would be in a Vietnam vet, go out of his way, came right. back, wanted this stuff. And because, of course, public relations was like, oh, you, you were supposed to already have done this. And it's like, well, well you want it done. Well, you got to know I'm a dirtbag NCO. So unless you provide, it's not going to happen. Yeah, right. And so, you know, get done, kind of clean up a little bit. And then David Letterman, you know, that was probably one of the best interviews I got because it was lighthearted. It wasn't super serious. That's my personality. I'm not a super serious guy yeah. for the most part, unless it's, mm -hmm. um, and it, it was just fun. And then we got done. He hung out with me afterwards. We had just a real great bullshit session back and forth. Letterman was known as a guy who had great admiration for the troops. And it, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, fr from Sal Ginta to uh, to the, the last Medal of Honor recipient during Letterman's tenure at the Tonight Show, he had every single one of you guys on the show, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, you know, I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't. I'm not aware of in the Vietnam era, for example, if it was common for um, Vietnam veterans to go on Carson. You know what I mean? I, that was a Letterman. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that very much. So I mean, I don't I'm trying to remember old videos with uh, some of the Vietnam guys, and I don't. Yeah. Think I don't think it. I don't think that was like an automatic. I think Dave Letterman kind of made that a tradition. Yeah, because I mean, who had been the only the biggest supporter was Bob Hope, if you think about it, and he he didn't really have a form except that he would do shows. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we all know Audie Murphy, freaking got some screen time afterwards he did that's true you know one of my favorite things uh when people talk about you know because you know a, a, a medal of honor recipient or anybody who's received a high award during the global war on terror 
you know, we're generally within the millennial age range. You're a little slightly older than uh, millennials. Uh, but when people are like, oh man, like dude, people these days, they, you know, they, uh, you know, they go on talk shows or whatever. And I'm like, yo, have you ever heard of Audie Murphy? That guy made a freaking entire movie career based off of his metal. Like it literally got him movie work. Cause that's all he ever yeah. wanted to be was an actor. He's, he starred as himself yeah. in a movie about himself. Yeah. Like, bro, like, you can't talk shit about anybody from this generation when you had Audie Murphy playing himself in movies. It's a good movie, actually. I'm just, I'm just saying. That's a, it's a classic, but it's like, <laughs> yo, yeah. I mean, you know, like uh, yes. our friend Dakota has a situation. Yeah, exactly. Our friend Dakota has maybe, a huge social media following. And because, yeah, he's a, he's a millennial. That's what we do. We go on Instagram. We go on Facebook. Like, like every single person, this is just what we do in our generation. This is not, it would be weird if, you know, if, if he wasn't, you know, having a presence, you know? Do uh, I got to ask this question. Do the kids, do your kids, is it, is it even registered or are you just still dad? Like um, for, you know, older ones. Yeah. They, they, they have a better sense and understanding uh, for some of the younger ones. They're like, why does that guy want your autograph? You have really cool handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's yeah. oh, great. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of figured that, but I just wanted to make sure I wanted to see if it was still, is it I, the older ones will feel it, but I don't think I wanted to know if they actually see if it, it like, if it's, it's still dad or is it, it's dad with something that he's done something extraordinary. So we, um, with the, the, uh, the post ceremony era, I would imagine that's when the, the melee and attention kind of peaked. Um, that started going down. And again, we, we didn't talk too much about your actions in Afghanistan, but, um, obviously the book Red Platoon covers that in depth. Yeah. Um, what, what made you decide to, to write that book? You know, like, especially right after uh, the ceremony and receiving the medal got approached right away by a whole bunch of, Hey, you need to write a book. You need to do this. And like I said, it was a really crazy time where, like I said, it was very uncomfortable and trying to figure out this whole process and wrap your head around, well, why am I getting all this attention? These guys aren't here. Uh, and for almost a year, I just was continuously saying, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Going by Leroy's words, yeah. <laughs> but as I, you know, continued to talk to a lot of the Gold Star families, uh, talk to uh, a lot of the guys I served with, you know, the Gold Star families were like, Clint, you've got an opportunity to tell the story. And unfortunately, the only things we know about our, our loved ones is what's in a redacted 156 the Army showed us and gave us. Uh, what little you guys have actually talked about when we've been close enough to kind of overhear and eavesdrop. And then what was kind of written in Jake Tapper's book, The Outpost. Okay. You know, and I kind of thought about that. Yeah, I don't know, it's still uncomfortable. And then the guys were like, look, you've got a chance to tell the story. You, you, you gotta do it. Don't think, you know, you're, you're doing us, you know, you're, you're selling out or anything like that. And I went back and forth for a while and I finally came back to him. I'm like, look, I'll do this book, but it's not going to be Clint did this and Clint did that type of book. Um, it's going to be 
a story of us and everybody together and especially of, of red platoon yeah yeah and tell their stories um then it was a i mean almost a therapeutic process in the two years it took to kind of compile and write the book was traveling around the country and interviewing the guys face to face and a lot of these guys hadn't really verbally talked about that day since that day do you think overall for all of you it was really beneficial to be able to go through that experience together obviously the, the battle had ended y'all had been processing it in your own way in order to kind of share it together again do you think that was a, a, a positive thing that came out I, of it? I think it was a very helpful thing for everybody uh uh that was part of the interview process and you know that was very much trying to get the guys to come out because some of them had talked to jake tapper and they told them some things but they never really opened up and you know it's always that you're not a journalist yeah and then it was also kind of wrapping our own heads around what happened uh to be able to sit there and and talk to someone like Raz larson that were literally just a couple of feet away when something was happening and to hear their perspective of what you're you know what you remembered versus their perspective and then vice versa it was like oh that's why this happened okay that makes more sense but that no that's confusing and it just gave everybody a better understanding i think overall to kind of put some sanity in such an insane action. You know, it, and it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I've, I've dealt with this, with my own personal experience, talking to a couple of dudes I served with about a couple of things we were involved with. And then um, I remember reading about it extensively in, in the book, Band of Brothers by Stephen Ambrose. And Ambrose covered this when he was doing the interview process with all these World War II veterans, right? And you can have two guys sitting in the same foxhole together and they will have two completely different perceptions of the same incident. And, and again, I've had conversations with my friends when they would say, talk about something happened that I witnessed myself, but it didn't sound right to me. And I never thought they were lying, but it's just the human brain is so crazy. We perceive things so differently, even when they're right in front of us. Yeah, I mean, even just like, like I said, a shift of a couple of feet gives a totally different, just even vision. Especially in that environment. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, and it's funny you mentioned that you talked, uh, you, uh, Larson in there. I actually, uh, because of you, I connected with him the other, we've hung out before, obviously. I won't tell that story right now. I've told that story before. Yeah. But uh, uh, I, I connected with him the other day because I was doing, a, I had an acting job where I was supposed to play an E7 in the army who had just completely given up and was fat and didn't care. And he was like a subject matter expert and he was giving me all the tips of how I play like a, a shit bag E7 very well. So thank you for connecting us. He was very helpful. <laughs> he was telling me how long I had to have my sideburns, what my hair had to look like. Yeah. I have a separate question here before I know, because we're, 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 I think you're going to start to wrap up here soon. Yeah, we're closing in. Did you, um, when you left Afghanistan after uh, the battle, because um, you, you, know, you do your full tour and you leave, did they not give you an end of uh, tour award? Uh, yeah, I, I ended up getting, I think, a bronze star for that. End of okay. Tour, which I've always been like, I, I, I've never agreed with end of tour awards. Right, so, but they just said, they go, here you go. Here you go, here's, tell us everything you did in the last 12 months. Well, minus that one thing that we're, you know, putting in for it. So that they didn't even address that? That's interesting. So they weren't, that, that's. No, they specifically didn't want to address it because if they wrapped it into an end of a tour award, they would have awarded me already. Right. 
without upgrading the whole thing. Oh, I get it. So there was nothing at the time. So they did, I mean, that one commander did say that to you and he said, he said distinguished service cross, right? And then, but that was it. But they said, all right, end of year, end of tour award, you know, good luck. <laughs> Is that basically what it was? Because you didn't you know. It was, and you, I, I think you should have seen. <laughs> well, of course they wanted you to, oh man, sometimes the army's weird. Oh, a lot of times they are. So they wanted kind of the guys to write their own end of tour yeah. award. Yeah. Uh, Huge red flag now. That's not how this works. And I wish I still had mine still saved. <laughs> it is for it is for majors. That's how it works for them. Right? Oh no, yeah. And if you're yeah, a field grade officer above, you're is. a fucking superstar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah my narrative was I forgot what day we showed up in Afghanistan and it just said arrived what it like 10 <laughs> April 09. Left on my own two Yeah. <laughs> that's Clint, a, that's a real citation. I think I guess that qualifies. Yeah, not the not the narrative that's written by that major that's ridiculous, yeah. even though he never left the top. <laughs> Clint, uh, Scott, Scott said, uh, as Scott said, we're kind of we're we're uh, running short on time here. I, I did have uh, kind of a, a last question, um, two part last question. Scott, if you have any have anything, please chime in. Um, obvious, so obviously after the book came out and everything like that, you're still, uh, very close with, uh, the guys you served with. I've seen it myself. You, any opportunity when you're doing an event, any opportunity you have given to you, obviously because of the attention that the metal brings, you bring them along there. It seems like they're as much of a part of the, the process as, as you are, um, and just, if you can recap kind of, um, the relationship you have with them to this day. The second part of the question I have is, um, you said that Leroy had mentored you when there, at that point, there'd only been a couple of Medal of Honor recipients from, from the Global War on Terror, um, or living Medal of Honor recipients from the Global War on Terror. Um, you know, there's been quite a few after you. Have you ever been in a situation where not even necessarily mentoring, but you, you know, you kind of tell a, a new guy receiving the medal, like, hey, this is, this is what you need to expect. So yeah, the, the first part of the question, you know, that's been one of the, the great things, you know, we were, we were living next to each other for 12 months straight, knew some of the guys even before that deployment. Um, you know, so you have such a camaraderie and a, a brotherhood and a tightness that you've known for so long. And then all of a sudden you transition, everyone spreads to the, the four winds. Um, it's really been great now with all the travel that kind of comes along with being a Medal of Honor recipient is I'm typically in a region where one of my old buddies is at. Yeah, and it's really awesome to be able to kind of piggyback that with these, I call them kind of little mini reunions or embarrassing uh, time with Clint, also known as, because <laughs> I'll have to go to like a fancy event. I'll tell one of my buddies, hey, you got to meet me here. We're just doing this little thing. And they show up in jeans and a t-shirt. It's really a, you know, tie and <laughs> jacket type of thing. <laughs> Put him in a very awkward position because I <laughs> might not have disclosed all the details. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, it, you know, it's just, I, I just don't think you can go through, you know, any sort of your military service without still trying to maintain a direct connection with those guys. Yeah, and those are very formative years of, of young men's lives. So, the, you know, just it's for the same reason that young men in college stay close friends with their college buddies. Like, those are important social years uh, for an individual. Yeah. Uh, and, and so are you... You know, obviously you've come across other uh, young, or not necessarily younger, but recipients who came after you. Have you, you know, not, you've not even necessarily been a mentor, but like, have you been in situations where you have to go like, hey, just to warn you, life's about to get crazy for you. 
Yeah, you know, because I was uh, I was a fourth living when I received mine, um, uh, and then shortly after uh, I received mine, you know, Ty Carter, I think, yeah, Ty was the next, and then I think it was Will Swenson, um, you know. So I who was also I, part of a high profile um, engagement with that yeah, had two two yeah him in Dakota yeah, yeah. And, and I mean it's always been a cool kind of a cool thing because when a, a new guy kind of gets we hear about him especially attached to the global war on terrorism. It seems like everyone, you know, all the recipients that have gone before always reach out and we always have this network, uh, especially when they're, you know, about to just travel down this road and receive their medal. And then what's cool too, is even after the fact, um, after they receive it, we're always coming across the situation where it's like, I, this is weird. I don't know what to do. I don't know. In fact, right before this phone call, Flo just called me. Yeah. yeah about some stuff that I don't know what do you think and you know it's it's cool to be able to bounce it back and forth and realize and, you know so we don't you, use, but at least we have each other and maybe and, figure it out and that's a brotherhood within itself uh, you know obviously all y'all come from different military backgrounds and have your own friends and brothers from your units but um, obviously all of you are in a very unique situation that I would imagine you have formed your own kind of connection Oh, absolutely. It's, it, I mean, it's just one of these things I think every one of us still cont continues to sit here and just wrap our heads at like, how am I in the same room with all these other great and amazing people? Yeah. Just, every day you can't help but wake up and kind of think that because it's like, I still look at myself as some hillbilly from Northern California that milked three cows every morning before school <laughs> that joined at 18 years old before the global war of terrorism was even going on, how I didn't get arrested in Germany back then, how I made it to Korea without, you know, coming back yeah. with COVID back then. And, you know, <laughs> and well, it, I know, well, you know, and I, 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 this has been such a good conversation and uh, we, we have so much to cover. So I'd like to bring you back for a part two, if, if, yeah. uh, if you're down to do that, but, I know uh, you personally, you, you, have, uh, you have a family to attend to during this quarantine. And uh, I know Scott's got his rugrats and um, I, I feel like we've hit a good natural stopping point right now. I agree. And I would love to back for a, a second track. All right, uh, well, this, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Scott.